I somehow see the play as a more ghost story than a war story in that the politics of the Iraq war act as a backdrop of the actual action and the characters and their kind of struggles in the play. That was Rajiv Joseph talking about his play, Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Rajiv Joseph's Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo is a haunting play set against the backdrop of the Iraq War. It's told from multiple perspectives by both the living and the dead. A Bengal tiger is the chief narrator, but there's also two American soldiers, their Iraqi translator, and a host of spirits wandering in and out on the stage. Bengal tiger is a complicated work that plays with the surreal, and as such is both highly theatrical and deeply imaginative. In 2008, it was selected for the NEA's New Play Development Program which supports the process and production of new American plays. In 2009, Bengal Tiger was presented in full production by the Center Theater Group in L.A. And in 2010, Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo was named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Drama. I had a chance to talk to Rajiv Joseph recently about the play and his career. Here's our conversation. Congratulations! Your play, Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Yes, thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah, it's very exciting. Can you give me a brief summary of the play? To you, what is what is that story about? The genesis of the story came from a small Associated Press article in the New York Times back in 2003 that dealt with an event, an actual event at the Baghdad Zoo shortly after the fall of Baghdad, where a soldier was trying to feed a a Bengal tiger in a cage and his hand was bitten by the tiger and so the other soldier shot and killed the tiger and the story was interesting and surreal and haunting to me and I wrote a 10 minute play based on that which was the two soldiers at the zoo and then an actor speaking to the audience as a Bengal tiger basically telling them in a very plain terms how much it sucks to be a Bengal tiger at the Baghdad Zoo and uh, as that action plays out and he's shot and killed at the end of the scene his ghost rises up and then for the rest of the play he acts as kind of a guide for the audience as he wanders the streets of Baghdad trying to figure out what's going on and also trying to figure out why he's a ghost and it follows him, the two other soldiers, and also an Iraqi translator who works with the military. And all of these individuals are either haunted or, as they die, become haunters in the, in the play. This is a play in which even the dead have no peace. Yes, that's absolutely true. They, that's the crux of the play, especially for the tiger and the, and the other ghosts as they, as they kind of accumulate. You know, by the end of the first act, half the cast is dead, and yet they're more active than ever and, and, and changing at a rapidly increasing pace, and many of them are, are struggling to figure out, what, well, what next? I think many, many people cling to the idea of life after death as a comforting notion, and uh, the play kind of explores the, <laughs> the concept of, okay, you're alive after death, but then you still don't know what to do with yourself, and you have to figure out, what, well, what am I going to do to wander around for all of eternity? And uh, 
that's the, the the questions and the kind of religious existential quandaries that these characters find themselves in in the story. You know, I'm not being glib at all, but I kept thinking of Hamlet saying the rest is silence and thinking <laughs> he really should see this play. <laughs> Absolutely. And we, we actually talked about Hamlet a lot with when I was in rehearsals with the director Moises Kaufman, who's a brilliant writer and director and um, and was a instrumental in the development of this story and this play and instrumental in finding its 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 life. And Moises and I both work in a way in which disparate texts of other plays and works of literature and poetry and film are always kind of allowed to flow into the room. And so we spend a good deal of time in this past rehearsal process talking about the last page of The Great Gatsby. We spent a lot of time talking about Tony Kushner's piece, Angels in America. Uh, we talked about Hamlet. We talked about The Terminator. We talked about Jurassic Park. I mean, all these things kind of filter in. A little Pulp Fiction. A little Pulp Fiction also it ne- it never never hurts the cause. It also seems to me that Bengal Tiger is a play about translation, about the act of translating. It absolutely is a play about translation. That seems to me one of the the deeper ideas and themes of the play First and foremost, that one of the main characters, the Iraqi character, Musa, is a translator for the military. But within that kind of job that he has, we have several scenes in the play where one character stands between two others and tries to facilitate communication and understanding. And it seems to me that that's an important act. It's, it's, it's something that, that fascinates me because it, it is so often faulty, particularly in moments of great stress. And, and moments of, of great conflict. We're already in a war situation, and in watching the scenes in this play, it's always interesting to me to watch the actors play with this, this idea because as an audience, we're also seeing, we're hearing languages that we don't understand. And there's no subtitles or supertitles used in the play by my prescription that it's important for the audience to me to be part of that confusion and to be part of the, uh, the, the, the tension that builds when people cannot communicate. Well, I'd like to talk about the development of the play because it was part of the NEA's new play development program. Absolutely right. Yeah. Can you talk about the program from your perspective? Well, we were uh, one of, I think, four plays to receive this grant from from the NEA. And uh, the trick with a a new play and a a new piece of theater, and especially for someone like me, I'm still trying to find my way in the world of theater and trying trying to establish myself as a playwright. And especially, you know, when this started and Center Theater Group uh, decided to do Bengal Tiger, you know, they, they had never heard of me. They didn't know my work. They happened to find this play across their desk and decide that, that it was worth doing. What that grant helped us with was, A, for this show to be done correctly, or at least in the, in the way it was done in Los Angeles, is um, it, it allowed us to kind of expand the, the scope of the, the physical presentation of the play by creating a, a set and creating props that were, go, that were going to kind of allow the, the story to grow around them in a way. And so that, to me, p- part of the beauty of this production, both productions in Los Angeles, were the design elements of it that really strike a chord, I think, with the audience. Beyond that, with with that grant, we were able to have extra readings. We were able to have uh, more rehearsal time. You know, all of these types of things um, helps this play because I was doing rewritings of it through rehearsals, through the preview performances. And with new plays, it's always just so important that that a playwright um, has the time and the space and the support to allow that play to grow if it needs to. And this is a play that that you know, has, has continued to grow. And, and even as we remounted it this past spring after a very successful run the previous spring, 
I continued to do rewrites. And it seemed to me that with that NEA grant, the play was put in a position where, on all counts, it was allowed to be as big as it wanted to be. You know, this play moves through so many worlds. We have a human world. We have an animal world. Musa was a gardener and created topiary. There's Baghdad. There's the desert. There's this life. There's the afterlife. Can you talk about navigating through all these separate realities? I mean, translating, if you will, all these different worlds. Absolutely. I mean, when I when I think back to the initial inspiration for the play, and now I can step away from you know where I was when I was writing it and think about what was it precisely that interested me in that story. And I think that there's these intersections of, of two worlds that are coming together in, in many ways. And I think, to me, what you could talk about the intersection of America and Iraq. You could talk about the intersection of the dead and the, the living. And then you could talk about also the intersection of the primal and the political, which was what that article seemed to me to be kind of exploring in that there's these political events that kind of rule our lives, that push people in different directions, that control destinies, that control the way the world works. And we, th- we think about these political things every day by reading the paper and watching the news and you know ruminating on them. And no matter where you might live, the political world shifts us and shapes us. On the other hand, the primal world does as well. And by primal, I don't just mean tigers in the jungle or tigers in the zoo, but I think I mean the most basic human impulses that also rule our lives, that make us who we are, that doom us, are the things that haunt us, that that have, have shaped us from the time we were very little. And I think that when those two things collide, the political forces of the world and the primal nature of, of, of one's own being, sparks fly. And at least in a dramatic form, you have something that is hopefully quite provocative and, and interesting. And to me, that intersection of the primal and the political has been the, the, the guiding force for me as the playwright. Are you surprised by the life that this play has? I'm stunned by the life this play has. Moises would say to me, you know, as we sat there, you know, before the first preview, before opening night, looking up at the gorgeous set that had been created in this beautiful theater in Los Angeles, he's like, isn't it amazing that this this all came from your imagination, this all came from your sitting in your room and writing, and, and that's always the extraordinary moment, I think, for a playwright, is to think that, you know, I was sitting there in graduate school back in 2003 and sketching out this scene, and now, you know, seven years later, I'm able to sit in this gorgeous historic theater in Los Angeles and and see it fill up with people and see people respond to this in in such an exciting way. You were brought up in Cleveland, Ohio, or outside of Cleveland, Ohio? Yeah, Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Did you come from a family that loved theater? Yes. My parents, while not ever involved in theater, are are huge fans of the arts and in every level. They love classical music. My dad and my mom both love rock and roll. They have a great record collection. They took us to the theater. They took us to the orchestra. They took us to um, dance concerts. And I think most of all, we loved movies. And we talked about movies. And we rented movies. And we watched movies as a family. And it was, and not just my parents, but my extended family. It would always, you know, family dinners, Thanksgiving would always end up talking about the movies that we've all been seeing and that's when everyone really just perks up and starts getting involved in the conversation and so I did come from a family that valued that and I think that that's definitely what's shaped both my brother and 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 my lives because my, my brother's a professional musician playing for the Buffalo Philharmonic now. You spent three years in the Peace Corps in Senegal. What made you decide you wanted to go to the Peace Corps? 
it has been something that I had wanted to do a, a good deal of my life before I had the opportunity to go. When I was when I was younger, my my mom's sister served in the Peace Corps and ended up meeting her husband at a Peace Corps event after they had both gotten out. He had also served, so that I had always known about it from them. And then in high school, I had three history teachers, three years in a row who all had served in the Peace Corps in, in Africa. And they talked about their experiences so much as part of their curriculum. And it always seemed to me um, just an adventure and uh, something that was so worthwhile doing and, and such an interesting thing to do, especially for someone like myself. As I went through college, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I had a vague notion that I wanted to write, but I didn't know what to write about. And um, it just seemed like the perfect opportunity to, t- to take myself out of a comfort zone, to have an adventure, to have something to write about. And it, and it turned out to be the case, um, and, and then so much more. It's, uh, it was, you know, the best three years of my life. Talk about what you brought back from that experience. Well, interesting you say that. I mean, the, the notion of, um, of language barrier and trying to communicate and trying to um, express yourself, I know firsthand to be a stressful experience. Um, especially when you first arrive in Peace Corps and in your first year of service, you really struggle with the language and, and you, you're put in a village or in a town where you know no one speaks, maybe not even French, which, which I had some background of, not, not a huge background, but I was speaking a local language called Mandinka and you know I struggled with it. And I found myself in many situations where I was, I was either unable to communicate or thinking I was communicating something, communicating something totally different. And so those experiences definitely led me led me to, to understand that, that kind of stress and also you know, led me also towards, I think, being more aware and more conscious of the way you know, different cultures exist. Um, that was part of the reason I went to begin with. Um, I think we live in an isolated country, and uh, it's, it's, I think it's really helpful for everyone to kind of step out of that and, and see how, you know, how, how, how other places in the world exist. What drew you to theater specifically? I, you know, it was accidental. I came back from the Peace Corps thinking I wanted to write, and still, um, but still struggling to find my, my medium. And uh, I thought that I was going to write film. I really, you know, I still was very passionate about movies. You know, I had, I had some friends working in the industry in Los Angeles, and I thought, you know, if I can just write a good screenplay, that, that could start happening for me. And so I decided um, to go to graduate school for that. And I went to the dramatic writing program at New York University, and I, I was accepted on the basis of a screenplay that I wrote. And fortunately, at that time, the Tisch School, the dra- dra- dramatic writing program, made students take both playwriting and screenwriting classes. And... That's how I kind of fell into playwriting. It was something. It was a, it was a mode of writing that appealed to me a lot more than screenwriting, a different type of storytelling. And additionally, through the university, we got a lot of free tickets to go see theater, and I started seeing theater that I had never seen before. And uh, there were a couple of plays that really had a profound impact on me and made me think that this is a this was the type of art form that was going to appeal to me. What plays? The two plays that um, that kind of came around at precisely those moments where I was deciding, trying to decide what I wanted to do, whether screenwriting or playwriting, were um, the play Intimate Apparel by Lynn Nottage and um, the play Our Lady of 121st Street by Stephen Abley Girgis. And in the case of Our Lady of 121st Street, here was a play, an ensemble cast of about 11 characters that who had all gathered back in, in, in their old neighborhood on 121st Street in New York, and there was such a multicultural and multiracial cast in a play that had nothing to do with race or ethnicity. It had to do with a neighborhood, and it had to do with friendship. 
And um, that was refreshing and, and exciting to me because I'm multiracial. And I, my, my father's Indian, my mother's white, and I grew up in a neighborhood that was very diverse, um, both religiously and ethnically and racially. And it's my experience that those things are not the primary reason why you tell a story. So if you have a story that has a, a multiracial cast, you don't have to tell a story that's about race. And that was an exciting revelation to me. Your play, Gruesome Playground Injuries, is about to open at the Woolly Mammoth Theater here in Washington, D.C. It had its world premiere in Houston, Texas. That's right, at the Alley Theater in Houston, Texas. And the Alley Theater has you know, recently rededicated themselves to finding and developing and producing new works by new playwrights. And um, they're a phenomenally exciting regional theater. Tell me just very briefly about Gruesome. What inspired that story? That play is a play about um, a guy and a girl over the course of 30 years of their life and their friendship. They meet in the first grade, and it goes until they're 38, and it jumps around in time. And essentially, it's it's kind of a, a tragic comic love story in which this, this boy loves this girl and is trying to get her attention and trying to get her to love him. And when she resists, his way of dealing with that is by getting into accidents, as it were, whether they're conscious or unconscious. He, at the start of every scene, has injured himself in a kind of gruesome, as the title suggests, way, and and she's constantly coming back to him. Now, what really inspired it was really just a conversation with a friend of mine who I've known all my life, who over drinks one night was just telling me about all the crazy injuries that I didn't know he had endured over the course of his life that were so bizarre that they ended up telling their own story of his life, and it occurred to me that you could track someone's life through the course of their their injuries, and if you could do that, you could track a relationship through the course of its its pitfalls. And now it's about to open at the Woolly Mammoth. Right. How much tinkering are you doing? Uh, Not much. Um, I did a little bit, but, I mean, just a few lines here and there. This is a a play, unlike Bengal Tiger, which I've done just so many revampings and rewrites over the course of the years and even over the course of the two productions. um, Bengal Tiger is um, a much, you know, I don't want to say bigger, but it's, it's, you know, in having a much larger cast and having a much larger sweeping kind of reality that there, that that play can go in a million different directions. And Gruesome is a much more intimate play, two characters. Um, the structure is very exact. And so you can never you could never just take this play and add a new scene uh, without damaging the entire body of it. And so any any changes that you would make would be minute. You're thirty five? Yes. Lord knows how many plays you've written, but mm-hmm. five of your plays already have been produced. Yes. That seems like a lot to me. I've, I've had a good run, you know, since I got out of grad school. I got, I got lucky when I got out, and I got um, a play done at the Cherry Lane Theater in the West Village in something called The Mentor Project, where three new plays are selected by three established playwrights who mentor them over the course of the year, and they're given a workshop production at the end of that. And since that, for me, which is my first play, Huck and Holden, one thing has led to another. And, you know, always the interesting thing to me about playwriting and why I was happy I, I selected that as my discipline in grad school was that in playwriting, at least in New York, there's so many different gradations and, and variations of what you could call success, for me at least, you know, getting out of grad school. You could get a reading here. You could get a fellowship there. You could get a roundtable reading just with a couple of actors that you know around town at, at, at a coffee shop or at someone's apartment. You might get a production here and there. 
And and all of those little things, just psychologically, you think, I have something going on. Somebody's interested in hearing my work. This is going to lead to something else. And it always seemed to me that in screenwriting, as a discipline that I still hope to you know pursue one day, it's kind of an all-or-nothing gig. You know, you either sell it or you don't. And there aren't any organizations out there that are willing to like help a screenwriter develop his screenplay without any strings attached. So it can make screenwriting a, a more daunting profession, it seems to me, than playwriting. Even though once once you do sell that screenplay, you know, the financial reward is is far greater than any play. But even so, what's helped me over the past few years since I got out of grad school is a constant knowledge that like even if I don't have a production going on. I can get something going. I, I, I can get these pages read by somebody. I can go to the Lark Play Development Center in New York where I'm a member. They've helped develop all of my plays, and they'll help me you know, bring in some actors just to hear some pages. And all of those things are really helpful for writers because it's all about getting your work out there. It's, it's, to me, at least, it's about getting responses to what you're writing so that you don't feel all alone in the world. You don't feel that your work is just falling on deaf ears. Well, I would think theater, well, certainly film as well, but theater is one of the most collaborative of all the arts. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's, it's a very collaborative. And with producers, with dramaturgs, with directors, with the designers, and you know, especially with actors, you have a lot of voices chiming in. And to me, that's the beauty of it. I, I, I rely on it, and I love that aspect of it. That was Rajiv Joseph. We were talking about his career in the theater, including his play, the 2010 Pulitzer Prize finalist, Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. You've been listening to Artworks. The music is Kosh Rang, written and performed by Amir El Safar from the CD, Two Rivers, used courtesy of Pi Recordings. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. Next week, musical director of the New York Philharmonic, Alan Gilbert, talks about his first season with the orchestra. To find out more about how Artworks and communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.